Easter sort of wrapped up our red letter series, we're diving in to a new series. We're going to be looking at the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, it's actually a perfect follow-up for Easter because 2 Corinthians is really... Um, in its essence about the implications of the resurrection. So like what, now that Jesus has come back, now that Jesus is alive, like what does that mean for all of us? Uh, how does this all go forward? Now we're calling this series Carriers, uh, partly because of the cultural reality that we are all living in right now, where everyone's kind of asking the question, who are the carriers? Who are the carriers of this virus that will turn, that has turned our world totally upside down? Who is the danger, right? In going to the grocery store, you're walking around and you're like, I, well, let, I don't know that you're like this. I am like this. I'm like, ooh, are, are, you, are you a danger? Are you a carrier? Who's the carrier? You're trying to protect yourself and stay away from those carriers. But in the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul actually says that those who are followers of Christ carry something very different that is actually more potent and more contagious than this virus that we are in the middle of. And it has more power to turn the world completely upside down than the way that this pandemic has turned our world upside down. It's crazy and it's more than we've ever experienced, this thing that we carry inside of us. And it surprised the church in those days to hear Paul say that they were carriers of this thing. And it will actually surprise us as we unfold what does this thing look like? What, what are we the carriers of? And so um, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians, but I want to give you a little context for this letter. This letter was written by a guy named Paul. Now, after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul was actually uh, this guy who had a great life. He was well-respected, top of his career, top of his game. Uh, he was highly influential, but he hated Christ followers. He hated Christians to the point that he got permission um, from the, the leaders and religious rulers and stuff like that to like hunt down Christians and kill them. Like it was the hunger games and he would find them and he'd burn down their houses and he'd stone them and, and he'd do all these things. He hated them. However, when he was going from Jerusalem to Damascus, Paul has this crazy, amazing conversion experience where he actually on the side of the road meets with the resurrected Jesus. Like Jesus appears to him in this ball of light and speaks to him. And as a result of it, Paul goes blind for three days and he becomes a Christ follower. And he leaves this whole life of luxury and comfort and power and prestige to basically travel the whole Mediterranean world to tell people about Jesus, to let them know who Jesus is and to try to start these communities that are working together to all follow Jesus. Now, one of these communities that Paul starts, one of these Jesus-following communities that Paul starts, is in a city called Corinth. And uh, you can read about that whole conversion uh, story of Paul and him going to uh, the city of Corinth in the book of Acts. You can check that out. Um, and, uh, and when he goes to Corinth, he does actually convert several people to follow Jesus. He tells them about the good news of Jesus, and they say, I want to follow Jesus. Um, but then when he left the city and he went to a different city in order to like continue on his way, the people in Corinth like start doing things that don't exactly reflect this like resurrected Christ and, and what Christ is calling us to. And so 
Paul gets news of this and Paul writes them a letter and he just kind of calls them out and says like, hey, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. If this is who Christ is, you can't be living in this manner. You need to live a life that is worthy of the call that you have been given in Christ. And all of that is wrapped up. That letter is, is, uh, is, um, is put in, like is protected and becomes, it becomes, the book of 1 Corinthians. And so you can check that out and you can read that. He calls them out on all sorts of things. Now, as you can imagine, that maybe when you get a letter or an email or a text message where somebody calls you out, hey, you're not supposed to be doing that. The people didn't really like that so much. And so what they chose to do is they were like, well, who's Paul? Who is he anyways? We don't even like this guy. Why should he be calling us out? Forget him. I care less about what he thinks anyways. And they sort of totally reject Paul. Forget the fact that like he started their community. He was the one that introduced them to Christ. They were like, what does Paul know? Paul doesn't know anything. Now, Perhaps you have had this kind of exchange over text message or email and and you were the recipient. Like you called somebody out and then they were like, I hate you. (laughs) You immediately, well, not immediately. Sometimes it takes a little while, but you figure out that you need to stop just emailing back and you need to stop texting back. And instead, there's a face-to-face conversation that needs to happen, right? That's good communication. And so Paul realized that as well. And so he decided, I'm not going to write them an email or not an email. He couldn't, but I'm not going to write them another letter. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go visit them. So he travels back to Corinth. Um, And what Paul calls this, uh, when he refers to it in the book of 2 Corinthians, he calls this the painful visit. That's how he refers to it. Like, you can, that's all we know, but you can only imagine what happened on that painful visit. Perhaps you have had a painful visit where you'd have to go and talk to somebody about something that was just not fun at all. That was really hard day in and day out. And so that's where, that's what Paul was in the middle of. Now, after the painful visit, Paul writes another letter. This is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And he says that This letter is actually filled with a lot of tears and anguish. Now, that second letter gets lost. We don't get to read it. We don't know where it is. We don't have record of it. The only reason we know that there was this painful visit and this letter of tears and anguish is because in the book of 2 Corinthians, which is actually the third letter (laughs) that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Paul references those two things. Um, But because of that visit and because of that letter of tears and anguish, uh, the Corinthian church actually like changes and, and they flip 180. They feel so sad and remorseful about what they have done. They ask for forgiveness and reconciliation from Paul. So Paul writes his third letter, which we call 2 Corinthians. Paul writes his third letter um, to let them know like, hey, I still love you. And I'm still committed to you. And and that's the letter that we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks. And again, to understand this letter, you really have to understand why the Corinthians responded to the first letter of Paul's with so much disdain and rejection of Paul. I mean, this guy who had started their whole community was just threw out on a rail and like, excommunicated from their community because he called them out on a few things. So, so why? Like, why did they respond that way? Why did they reject him so quickly and completely? Well, it was really based on three things. First, it had to do with the fact that Paul was poor. 
He didn't have a lot of money. He wasn't a wealthy guy. He had given his life over to traveling the world to tell people about Jesus. And when he needed money, he'd stop in a city. And he was a tent builder. So he'd like build a tent, sell it, and get enough money to go to the next place, right? Um, Or if he was staying in a city for a little while in order to build the community, he would build tents for that community. He'd sell them and he'd live off of that, which honestly, it just didn't make a lot of money. So so he was pretty poor. Um, And the second reason they rejected him was because he was constantly running into problems and hardships. Every time they heard a story about Paul, it was like one challenge and difficulty after another after another. He would have lost something. He would have um, suffered another thing. It was just, it never seemed to end. And the third reason was because he really wasn't very charismatic. Like, he wasn't really a good speaker. He didn't really have eloquent words, and he just, he just was pretty plain and, and simple. Now, those don't really seem like reasons to totally reject someone, but think about this for a second. When, for the Corinthians, when push came to shove, they had a choice to follow this poor guy who always is experiencing hardships, who doesn't even talk really well, and is calling them into that sort of life, one of hardships and suffering. Or <laughs> they could choose a to-, to follow totally other people. Some of these other, what, what Paul calls these super apostles or super Christians that lived in Corinth and they were rich and they were wealthy. And they had this really, really easy life and they were winsome and charismatic. Now, they were faced with this choice and then this guy over here who's like, poor and suffering all the time, calls them out on something. They're like, well, screw you. We don't want to follow you anyways. I'll go with the rich guys who have the easy life, right? Now, maybe if me and you were faced with the same choice, maybe we would make the same choice. Maybe we would reject Paul too. Maybe we would choose to go with the comfort and the lush and the, and the attractive sort of lifestyle. But at the root of the Corinthians' decision was sort of this worldview that they held, that if someone was blessed by God, they would be financially successful and they would have a good life and they'd be protected from hardships and harms and bad things happening to them. And Paul had a lot of bad things happening to him. In fact, later in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul actually lists them. He says this, I mean, just count how many bad things have happened to him. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the uh, 40 lashes minus one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was pelleted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles. I have uh, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have been, I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And Paul just continues on from there. And so you look at this list and you're like, oh my gosh, how is it possible that this guy could have the blessing and anointing from God on him and his life? How is it that so many bad things have happened to him? Is this guy, is this the path that I really want to follow? 
Now, maybe these are some of the questions that you've been asking yourself too. Why is all this bad stuff happening in the world? Is this a curse from God? And maybe you're asking it on a global level, or maybe you're asking it just for you personally. Like, wherever I turn, maybe you're asking yourself, hey, wherever I turn, like, bad stuff is happening to me. What am I getting wrong? Like, what is wrong with my relationship with God? Surely this wouldn't be happening if I was on the right path. What, what is wrong with me? Or maybe it's even, what is wrong with God? <laughs> that he would let all of this stuff happen. Surely this wouldn't happen if God was really a good God. Surely life would be easier if God really was real and if we really had a relationship with one another. See, just like the Corinthians, we can easily begin to think that doing good and being in a relationship with God means that we're going to have a good life with no hardships and no pain and no suffering. But the truth is, none of us have a pain-free life. None of us have a suffering-free life. No one. We all suffer. We all experience pain. Now, certainly some of our lives are filled with more advantages, uh, more ease and more privilege, more comfort. And the reality is, is that, but the reality is, is that all of us are guaranteed to lose every earthly thing that we have ever possessed. And all of us are guaranteed to lose every single person that we have ever loved, either abruptly or eventually. But every step we take forward in life is towards loss and death of something in our lives, whether it's the loss of our bodies, the physical strength that we have, or our mobility, or our appearance, or our skills, eventually our skills deteriorate and we just can't keep up. Or we lose our relationships. Now, I'm sure that everyone is like, mm, why are we watching this this morning? This is really depressing. Like, I don't know that I really want to talk about this. And I totally understand we don't want to talk about this. And, and the reality is, is, as a culture, as a society, as humanity maybe even, we don't. We don't talk about this. And neither did the Corinthians. They didn't want to talk about it either. Just like the Corinthians, we try to numb the reality of life. We try to disguise the reality of life. We try to ignore it by surrounding ourselves with comfort and, and security. We give ourselves, we try to pursue a good house and good food and health insurance and, and money and entertainment and knowledge, all so that we can try to create enough comfort and security to guard ourselves from the reality that, that we're really going to lose everything. At some point, we're really going to lose everyone. At some point, we are all heading towards death and total loss. Now, this sounds really depressing, but, but hold on for a second. Hold on for a second. What Paul knows, and he wants the Corinthians to know, and he wants us to know, is that we have to understand the fragility and mortality of our life in order to understand the really great stuff that's going on under 
the surface. See, what Paul writes the Corinthians is this, that though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul actually uses a particular phrase to talk about our mortality. He calls it a jar of clay, that it's fragile and it's wearing away. It's easily broken. It's, it's cracked and it's disposable. But there's more to us than just that. What Paul says is that we carry this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, we are more than just this mortal and fragile jar of clay that's wearing away. Inside of us, we carry a treasure. Now, know what Paul is saying. He's not saying that our bodies are a treasure. Our bodies are a jar of clay. And unfortunately, what so often happens is we actually treat our bodies like the treasure. We hold on to us and we pamper us and we worship ourselves and our bodies and we clasp onto it and we bask in it and we treasure the jar instead of treasuring the treasure that's inside. But there's a treasure that's inside of our broken and dying bodies. And if you just look at us, and you look at the hardships that we're going through, you're going to miss the brilliant beauty that's happening inside. So what's the treasure? What's happening inside? Paul unpacks it in chapter 4, and the treasure is actually the brilliant beauty of the potential of redemption for all suffering and death. The beauty of the potential for redemption for all suffering and death. Now, sometimes what we think that means is that we're just supposed to embrace all the suckiness of life and just be like, yes, this life is filled with pain and suffering and that's just the reality of this life. Um, But one day we'll experience heaven. Uh, It sort of makes it out to be like that being a Christian is like saying, yes, life sucks, but at least you have Jesus. And the reality is, is when you take on that attitude or when you understand what Paul's trying to say in that way, it sort of just makes Jesus and heaven like this cosmic consolation prize for all the crap that we've had to deal with in this life. But, but that's not what Paul is saying. That's actually not Jesus, and that is not the gospel. Instead, Paul tells us to look at it more like this. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying the body of the de- in, in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus's sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What Paul is trying to say is that we might be losing in this moment, but the story isn't over. We might have been thrown down, but but we have not been broken. We might have been crushed, but not a piece has been lost. We might be dying, but, but that is not the end. After all, we know the story of Jesus, that he was put on trial, he was tortured, he was mocked, he was murdered, but he lives. He walked out of the grave, and what happened to him happens in us. So we might 
be put on trial. We might be tortured. We might be mocked. We might be murdered. But if we tie our death to Jesus's death, we live. We too walk out of the grave. That, that's how the gospel works. The gospel is that darkness leads to light, that despair leads to hope, that there's no resurrection without death, that there's no light without, piercing, without it piercing into darkness, and there's no hope without it reaching into the depths of despair. See, God has this really interesting relationship with death and suffering. He doesn't avoid death nor does he welcome death. He doesn't celebrate death. He doesn't even fear death. God engulfs death. He surrounds it, recognizing that in the kingdom of God, even death will be made subservient to joy and life. That when Paul says that we carry the death of Jesus in our bodies, what he's saying is that he wants his life and his ministry to imitate that of the death of Jesus. That in the same way that Jesus' death brought life to the world, Paul wants all the little death and deaths and losses that he's experiencing to bring light and life to the world, to others. All the other things that Paul has lost or the hardships that he's experiences, he sees them and he wants them to count towards the life of another. After all, if it were not for the hardships that Paul experienced, the Corinthian church would not have life. They never would have known Jesus. There would never have been a church in Corinth. And we can see this type of thing happening on a daily basis. I mean, even right now, we see doctors and nurses that are sort of experiencing death in their own, of their own safety in order to bring life to other people. We see people that are experiencing the death of loneliness as they are uh, sequestered to their houses in order to bring physical life and possibility to those who are the most vulnerable and the weakest. We see people who are experiencing, who are, who have might experienced the loss or the death of a child or a spouse, giving life to others who have ex also experienced the loss of a child or a spouse. Every day, even in our congregation, there are people who have experienced so much loss and who have given it over to God to allow God to redeem it and bring life to others. Now that can't really happen. That can't really happen when we're clinging to this wearing away jar of clay. It can only happen when we're willing to surrender all that we're losing anyways, all that will one day die anyways, all of that hardship over to God and cling to the treasure that is inside that has the potential to redeem all of the loss and all of the death and bring it to God so that he can bring life. See, everyone, everyone experiences suffering and death, but not everyone understands the redemptive potential of that suffering and death that can happen in Christ. See, in Christ, even if you are experiencing the worst of life right now, 
When you tie that loss to Jesus, when you tie that death to Jesus, you also get to experience his life. Now, that really is easier said than done. I I don't want to belittle the heartache. It's not that we experience hardship and then we're like, oh, it's fine, whatever. Jesus is here. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's good. No, it's it's not. It's not that. It's a difficult process. It's a process because sometimes pain and suffering can feel like it goes on forever. In fact, I was just reminded this past week that as Western Christians, um, I think this may happen to a lot of people, but particularly Western Christians, we tend to be really good in crisis. That when something hard happens, either to ourselves or to another, we're pretty good at hitting our knees quickly, of seeking after God in prayer. We're pretty good around rallying after somebody when, when a global or a national or a local crisis happens. We, we get real generous <clears throat> in that moment. We fall to our knees and we ask God for help. The problem becomes when that hardship or that crisis carries on for a while, <laughs> We really have trouble with longevity and endurance. We think, yeah, yeah, I I did that. I already prayed. (laughs) I already tried to be generous. I already dealt with that. I would like to move on from this hardship. I've already like talked to God about this. Uh, It's already happened. Let's, Let's move on. This has been going on long enough. This isn't what I want. So God, take it away. Now, If you've prayed that prayer to God of sort of like, hey, this isn't what I want, would you just take this away? The reality is, is you're in pretty good company (laughs) because so did Jesus. This is the same prayer that he prayed. On the night of his arrest, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to basically talk to his heavenly father and say like, listen, this suffering and this pain, this is too much. This has gone on too long. Like I could deal with it in the beginning. I could, I could become human. I could do this. But, but this part of the cross and the death and the torture, this part, I don't want to do. So will you take this cup from me? And ultimately what Jesus says at the end of his prayer, but not my will, but yours be done. And my question that sort of resides inside of my heart is how was he able to do that? I know he was the son of God, but, but I look at Paul. <laughs> and Paul was able to do that too. He kept walking faithfully through suffering and pain. How was Paul able to endure beating after beating, shipwreck after shipwreck, and still say, I consider it all trash and rubble and garbage ex- compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior? How is it that Jesus and Paul could both walk so faithfully with endurance, with longevity through this whole thing? And the way Paul says it to the Corinthians is this. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. See, the reason that Jesus and Paul didn't give up and didn't lose heart even when things got painfully hard, is because they knew the ministry and the mercy of God. The other way to say that is they knew what God was up to. That that no matter the pain or the suffering or the death, this wasn't the end of the story. 
that God was on the move. He was working to bring something so much bigger. They knew that God was laboring to bring greater grace and greater goodness and greater redemption into this world. That God is laboring to bring heaven to earth. And so Paul is like, keep hitting your knees to the floor. Keep being generous. Keep being faithful. Keep pressing on. Don't give up because we know that God is up to something. This is the great redemptive work that is happening that's, that's hidden inside of these wearing out earthly vessels of clay. We know that there is a brilliant beauty that's just about to crack open. There is a brilliant beauty of what God is doing on the inside. So don't give up. Don't lose heart. And all of that is only possible because Christ was raised from the dead. Because if Christ is raised from the dead, then we're all raised from the dead. Because of the resurrection, whatever we're dealing with, whatever suffering, whatever pain, there is light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) There is life at the end of death. And so in all of this is sort of this invitation. For some of us, it's an invitation to sort of admit that to, to admit what is the jar and what is the treasure. That your body, your skills, your position, this life, the possessions that you have, the people that you love are all decaying and wearing away. And nothing is going to stop that. However, there is a treasure that is Christ. That if you surrender all that is already wearing away, that you will already lose anyways, over to God. God has the redemptive power to bring life from it. To bring life to you, not just in the next age, but this time right now, and life to those around you. Now, for others of us, you've already received this invitation You've sort of accepted Jesus as the treasure and you've sort of handed over um, all of the loss of life and you've kind of given that over to him. However, maybe you're in a place where you're losing hope because it doesn't seem to have an end. It seems like it's going on for a little too long. And for you, there's an invitation to ask God to bring light in order to see what it is that he's doing. See, one of Paul's encouragements is this. He says, For God who said, Let light shine in the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now what Paul is saying is that just as God spoke into creation at the very beginning, into the darkness, let there be light, and there was light. God can also speak into the darkness of your life and he can give a glimpse of what he might be up to so that you might be encouraged to not lose heart. And so whether you're an individual who is at a place where you need to admit what is a jar of clay and what is the treasure, or whether you're a person who's already made that decision, but, but you need a little hope You need a little light in your life to see a glimmer and a glimpse of what God is up to in the midst of this hardship and this pain. God is calling you to come to him because he's he's big enough to do both of those things. And so that's my invitation for you today. Will you pray with us? 
Father God, I am so thankful that what we're in the middle of right now is not the end of the story. That whether it's suffering as a result of this global pandemic or all of the other things that have happened in our lives. Father, we are so grateful that this isn't the end. And that we don't have to wait for heaven for, for some sort of life and joy, but you come to us in this life. That you are here to have transformed this life. And so, Father God, we ask that you would come to this space in all the places that we're in and that you would bring your redemption, that you would bring life, that you would take all of the pain and suffering and allow the brilliant beauty of your sun to shine through. Father God, we pray all of these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.